and welcome to Teacher Magazine's podcast special, direct from the ACER Research Conference for 2014. Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister of Australia, discusses quality and equity with Professor Jeff Masters, CEO of the Australian Council for Educational Research. Good afternoon, everybody. It's my great pleasure today to be introducing this conversation session of our pre-conference program. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting over the next few days and pay my respects to Elders past and present. We at ACR recognise the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who contribute to our work to improve learning through research. I'd like to introduce our two speakers today, Professor Jeff Masters, Chief Executive Officer of ACER. Professor Jeff Masters has been CEO of ACER since 1998. He has a PhD in Educational Measurement from the University of Chicago and is an adjunct professor in the Queensland Brain Institute. Jeff has contributed to education through numerous boards, including the Australian College of Educators, the Asia-Pacific Educational Research Association and the International Baccalaureate Research Committee. He is currently a member of the Advisory Board for the Science of Learning Research Centre and the ABC Digital Education Advisory Group and the National Board of Life Education Australia. He has conducted reviews for governments around Australia in curriculum and assessment and is currently undertaking a review of senior secondary assessment and tertiary entrance procedures in Queensland. Recent major publications include Reforming Educational Assessment, Imperatives, Principles and Challenges in 2013 and the development of the National School Improvement Tool in 2012. His contributions to education have been recognised through the award of the Australian College of Educators Medal in 2009 and we're pleased to say his appointment as an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2014. Please welcome Professor Jeff Masters. It's also my great pleasure to welcome Julie Gillard back to our research conference series. As Deputy Prime Minister, she opened our 2008 conference. On a personal note, um, I never imagined when I was in Grade 6 at Seacliff Primary School here in Adelaide that sitting in a classroom about 15 kilometres away in Grade 3 in Mitcham Primary School was the first future first female Prime Minister of Australia and that I would be in a position as to be able to introduce her today. These are the possibilities for children of working class parents when these parents have high aspirations and an equitable education system makes it possible. In, 2010, in June 2010, Julia was sworn in as the 27th Prime Minister of Australia, an office she held for three years. As we know, she's the first woman Prime Minister or Deputy Prime Minister in Australia. In these roles, Ms Gillard was central to the successful management of Australia's economy during the global financial crisis, and as Australia positioned to benefit from Asia's rise, she developed the guiding policy paper, Australia in the Asian Century. Throughout her political career, Julie Gillard delivered nation-changing policies, including reforming education at every level from early childhood to university education, creating an emissions trading scheme, improving the provision and sustainability of health care, aged care and dental care, commencing the nation's first ever national scheme to care for people with disabilities and restructuring the telecommunications sector as well as building a national broadband network. Under Ms Gillard's leadership, Australia was elected to the UN Security Council. 
Her commitments to improvement in education is now being demonstrated globally in her role as Chair of the Global Partnership for Education. Please welcome the Honourable Julia Gillard. Thank you. Um, Julia Gillard, welcome. Thank you um, very it's much. It's good to be here. Absolute delight to have you um, with us. It's not the first research conference um, you've uh, contributed to, um, but we're very pleased to um, have you back with us again and, and pleased to have the research conference occurring here in Adelaide um, this year. In, in beautiful Adelaide. In beautiful we've, Adelaide. <laughs> and we've, we've turned on a perler of a day, so I'm glad that's happened as well. A little bit cold in the shade, but, um, <laughs> but a beautiful day if you're in the sun. That's absolutely true. Well, um, Julia, having run Australia and, and played a very significant role um, in educational reform, um, you've now moved on and you're working on an international um, stage. Um, I thought a way to start maybe just to have you talk a little about... Um, the roles that you're now playing. Um, we know that um, in October last year it was announced that you would be joining the Brookings Institution um, as, as a, um, I think it's called a non-resident um, senior research fellow in, uh, in their Centre for Universal Education. And then in February this year, um, again, it was announced that you would be, um, you were becoming chair of the Global Partnership for Education. Now, I'm not sure how much our audience will know um, about the GPE, the Global Partnership for Education, um, but a starting point um, might be just for you to tell us a little about the GPE. What is it? Um, what, what's its mission? Um, how does it go about its work? Sure. Thanks, Jeff. And it is great to be here. And I'm very pleased to talk about the Global Partnership for Education. It is the big multilateral funder of education in developing countries. So if you look at the international stage, there's a few multilateral organisations that deal with education. UNESCO, importantly, brings education ministers together to talk policy. Uh, UNICEF does vital work for children in absolute crisis. So when, for example, we see children flee from Syria into Lebanon, uh, UNICEF is one of the agencies there on the ground to give them care and assistance. But it is only GPE that works in a systematic way, solely on education, funding it in developing countries. So we work with 59 developing country partners We've just adopted a new financing model, which means a donor money is on the table from donor governments, including Australia, provided the developing country partner we work with increases its own domestic education expenditure. The GPE model's not project-based. We don't go and build a school or fund a girl's education program. It's whole system strengthening. So we work with developing governments to generate education sector plans. We work with local education groups that include government representatives, but also civil society and education advocates and experts to make sure the plan is as strong as possible. Our GPE grew out, at the, out of the UN's fast track initiative to get kids into school. Its mission has been to achieve the Millennium Development Goal of universal access to primary school for all children in the world. Uh, we've made some big progress as a whole global community. GPE in the past four years has worked to get 22 million children into school. 
Uh, but there's more to do. There's mm. 58 million children who still don't get access mm. to primary school. They're in the hardest to reach places, uh, often in conflict affected zones, in rural areas. They're kids with disabilities. They're kids from the poorest of families. They're kids from ethnic groups that are persecuted within the nation in which they live. Uh, but we can't leave these children mm. behind. And GPE has had some success in making sure that those kids too get into school. Uh, but there's more to do and we just had our replenishment conference. We've got some more money together. So we're about to get on the next four year period of activity. And our aim is to get 29 million kids into school over the next four years. Mm. Mm. I remember um, back in the year 2000 um, attending the World Education Forum. I was one of the one of two the, the two Australian delegates to the World Education Forum in Senegal, um, mm. in West Africa, um, and that was the meeting that said set the education for all goals. Um, at that time, I think it was UNESCO um, had estimated that there were 113 million children not in school, primary age children not in school, mainly in sub-Saharan Africa and and South Asia. But as you say, there are, there are still, we, we set ourselves a goal then in the next 15 years of getting every child into primary school and 2015 is next year, so we're not going to meet that goal. Um, but as you say, we have made internationally very significant progress. Um, we still have, as you said, 58 million children out of school. Do you have any thoughts on, on what it's going to take? I mean, we're no doubt dealing with the, the hardcore mm. issue here now with these 58 million children. Has the GPE um, thought, does it, does it have ideas about what it's actually going to take to get these 58 million children into school? Uh, look, we've got ideas and we've got experience, mm. but one thing that uh, is very clear from GPE's work and from the work of other agencies, you know, uh, AusAid, formerly known as AusAid, the work it would do, and mm. other aid agencies, uh, essentially is uh, one size doesn't fit all. No. Uh, you can't steamroll out of Canberra or, in GPE's case, Washington and say, you know, I've got the answer. Mm -hmm. uh, it never works like that. There's got to be country ownership and country leadership. It uh, can be about a range of things. I mean, there are supply constraints. Uh, not enough schools, mm -hmm. not enough teachers, not enough infrastructure, and we've got to deal with those supply constraints. Uh, there's education under attack problems. How do we make sure that when there is conflict, when people are on the move, that in the refugee situations they find themselves in, that as well as attending to the humanitarian needs of providing food and water and medicine and shelter to people, we as quickly as possible start attending to the educational needs of the children. Uh, so there's, there's that mm -hmm. sort of sphere mm -hmm. of work. And then there are also some, you know, uh, cultural constraints and uh, national objective constraints that we've got to overcome. Uh, the mission to persuade families, particularly the poorest of families, that it's worth educating girls rather than diverting them mm. into domestic labour or farm labour or even worse, into early childhood marriage or sex slavery. Uh, breaking through barriers in countries where there's a particular ethnic group or a particular rural area uh, that is not well serviced by the government. Uh, so really it's for us been about reinforcing with developing country partners that all means all. Uh, universal access is for every child. You don't forget about the girls or the kids with disabilities or any other group. Pointing to successful models elsewhere uh, working to strengthen their local model, 
but we are now taking it to the next stage where under our new funding system, part of the money will be at risk unless developing countries can show progress to universality for all of the children. Mm -hmm. um, now, you would know and everybody in this room would know that access is one thing, having mm -hmm. kids mm -hmm. sitting in something that's called a school, uh, but quality is another thing and the mm -hmm. next part of the journey, apart from getting the 58 million children into mm -hmm. school, mm -hmm. is to be very focused on the quality agenda. Indeed, and I think that's one of the observations that we have made internationally again, isn't it? We've been successful in getting many more children into school over the past 15 years, but what we're seeing over and over again is that some children are spending two years, three years, four years, six years possibly in school, and they're still coming out with absolutely minimal levels of, of reading, um, for example. So um, I expect that, and this is an observation that's being made internationally, I expect a big challenge um, in the next 15-year period will be to think about not only how we address issues around access and participation, um, but how we lift levels of achievement as well. So that, that, that brings me on to the topic of our conference, which is, is you've already taken us there really, um, it's, it's quality and equity. Um, and what we'll be doing over the course of the next two days is hearing um, about a range of research, um, looking at the data, thinking about what's working to address both quality and equity. Um, in education. Um, do you have views about those topics? Um, um, how should we be thinking about quality and equity? Is, is, what, what's, what's the way to think about it in the 21st century? Um, is it a trade-off? Um, can you have both quality and equity? What, what does it take to, to achieve both quality and equity in educational provision? Look, I certainly think you can have both quality and equity, mm. uh, that there isn't a trade-off there. Mm. But it's very important to define terms and be clear about what yeah. we mean and the yeah. measurement. And, of course, that, that is the expertise of ACR and so many people in this room. And I wouldn't presume to uh, lecture on that because everybody here knows so much more than I do. Uh, but, I mean, one of the things I would say about the global education agenda is with the Millennium Development Goals, people picked a measurement that would make sense. Mm. Universal access to primary school, that mm. seems sensible. Mm. We want kids in school. Uh, and yet it has, in some parts of the world, delivered uh, you know, perverse outcomes mm. where, for example, some nations have said, well, we're going to hit that MDG by abolishing fees for school. Well, I think here we would say that's a good thing, that there shouldn't be a payment, a money payment thing that is preventing children from going to school. Uh, but we'll abolish the fees for primary school. We won't put any more resources in. Uh, so schools actually now have less money because they're not getting the fee income. They've got more kids because more kids come. And kids go from being in classes of 40 to classes of 100. And people who observe the lessons in these classes say maybe the top 20 kids sitting at the front of the class are actually learning and the kids at the back of the class are all holding the book upside down because they haven't even got that first concept mm -hmm. that that squiggle, which is a letter, actually has a meaning, and if you can decode that meaning, then, you know, some magic can happen. Uh, so, you know, the statistics on this are truly frightening, that 250 million children are meeting basic literacy and numeracy standards, uh, and around half of those children have actually had four years of education. So mm. this is a profound challenge, uh, which is all a way of saying when we're talking about quality and equity, I think we've got to get our concepts right and we've got to get the measurements right in order to drive the best of professional conduct. 
But if we do that, then I think we can achieve mm. both. And mm. one of the things I wanted to say to our nation through our educational reform agenda was it's not about leaving you know, the kids who are falling behind at the back of the class and saying, oh, don't worry, they'll come out of school and they'll get a manual, unskilled job. Mm. Mm. There aren't manual, unskilled jobs in the 21st century for kids who fall out the back of the class. So we've got to have mm. a focus on equity. But for the kids that are achieving, uh, we want to make sure that there is absolutely nothing that holds mm. them back from the highest levels of achievement. And when I started as Education Minister, the thing that was really concerning about our international testing results it was showing that we didn't have the highest possible quality for the kids at, you know, doing the best. Mm. Uh, we were letting the most gifted of children down mm. and we were still managing to run a low mm. equity system. So mm. sort of fail, fail. Mm. Uh, and we needed to address both problems. Mm. Yes. Well, there are papers at this conference, as you would imagine, um, addressing those questions, looking at what we are learning um, from programs like PISA and TIMS and, and PEARLS and NAPLAN as well these days, um, looking at um, trends over time, um, changes that have been occurring. And one of the things we, we can see, as you said, is that um, not only at 15 years of age have our results in Australia been declining, so this is a quality question, um, both in reading and in mathematics, um, but um, there seems to be a particular problem at the top end um, of our distribution. Um, you set us the national goal um, of being in the top five countries in the world um, by 2025. Um, how do you feel about that goal now? Are you still, <laughs> still committed to that goal? Well, I've always been a big believer in a stretch target, so it yes. <laughs> uh, get, gets everybody focused and pushing in the right direction. Mm. Uh, look, in, in, in reality, I mean, it depends because uh, all of this uh, depends on uh, political will, policy will, uh, leadership at school level, professional development leadership, the kinds of things that people who come to this conference do. Uh, I think it is achievable if we get a set of policies right. Um, when we're looking, uh, one, one of the things I'd say just about the politics of it is I think when we get our PISA results, uh, often if they aren't uh, equating with what we would have liked to have seen, there's a throwing up of hands and, a you know, everything's got to change and we can't be doing anything right. I think we, you know, need to recognise PISA measuring 15-year-olds is actually measuring mm. uh, education policies that were in operation as long mm. as 10 years ago when those children first started school. Mm. And if they had a bad experience in prep and a bad experience in grade one and grade two and grade three, uh, then there's really no mystery why they're mm. still, you know, not blitzing it uh, in PISA when they're 15 years old. Mm. Uh, what I think uh, in terms of contemporary education policies is probably the better measure is the more fine-grained stuff that we're getting from NAPLAN, uh, which is telling us what we're achieving for our Grade 3 students and our Grade 5 students, which is where you would expect to see the impact of recent education policies first. Mm. And I think that there are some pleasing signs there. Doesn't mean everything's perfect and that you never, you know, review and think again. But I think in the broad, the policy directions that uh, we structured of funding based on need, uh, of ensuring that there was a rigorous focus on achievement, mm. that there was transparency, that there was an empowerment of school principals, uh, that there was community engagement, that there were whole school plans that people were held accountable against. I think those are mm. the right 
elements mm. in the recipe, uh, though, you know, always there's more thinking to do and more research work mm. and more to learn. Mm. It's certainly true, and I imagine we'll be talking about it a little at this conference, it's certainly true that NAPLAN over the last five years now, it's been running, um, shows an improvement at the grade levels you mentioned at year three and year five, particularly in reading. Um, in mathematics, um, some improvement in some jurisdictions, but pretty much across the board um, in years three and five, we're seeing some improvement. So that may be exactly what we'd hope for, um, that we're starting to see an impact there that will, will flow through. Um, but coming back to the equity question, I, I guess the other observation that we're making through programs like PISA is that the gaps that we've been so focused on tend not to be closing, um, so at least from the measures that we have. Um, so if you look, for example, at the uh, Indigenous gap using the PISA results from uh, 2000 through to 2012 now, um, the gap is pretty much unchanged, despite everything that we've, we've done. Mm. Um, not to say there hasn't been an improvement in, in pockets, um, but at the national level. And similarly, um, if, if one compares the, the um, top quartile um, on socioeconomic background with the bottom quartile, that gap too is pretty much unchanged across the 12 years. Do you have any thoughts on, on that issue? Um, well, I mean, these are, uh, these are hard problems, mm, stubborn mm. problems, and so I guess we in many ways shouldn't be, you know, uh, amazed that they're still presenting. What, uh, what I had the privilege of doing when I was Education Minister and then Prime Minister, and actually I'm getting the opportunity to do it now on a global scale, mm. uh, is you can identify you know, pockets, to use your words, um, in some schools, some regions that are clearly getting the mix right mm. and making a big difference for the mm. children within their schools. But both nationally and certainly globally, we don't seem that good at upscaling mm. from those uh, pockets of uh, work that are really changing lives for kids to a more universalised mm. application. And I think this in some ways is the thinking policy challenge mm. for us. Um, and it is one that besets so much of social policy. I mean, unlike, um, you know, uh, medical policy, I mean, the reality is if, you know, you and I, um, you know, changed our whole lives and then managed to come up with a blockbuster pharmaceutical, uh, the, the journey between it being in our research labs and it being ubiquitously available around the planet, actually in the modern age is a pretty short journey mm. and you could count it mm. in a number of years. Uh, the journey between new educational practice making a difference in a school or mm. a region and it being analysed and what's good about it spread mm. nationally mm. or indeed globally, uh, that's a journey without real pathways mm. at the mm. moment. And one of the things that I think conferences like this do is it helps us open up the pathways. I would hope that for our own country that one of the things all of the transparency is doing is creating new pathways so that we can better share uh, between those schools that are really getting something right and those schools teaching similar kids that aren't getting those results. Mm -hmm. I sometimes um, make the point that pretty much every school day across Australia teachers are learning how to do things better out there somewhere. There'll, there'll, be, there'll be teachers who are learning, and yet very little of that learning gets shared um, mm. across the, the profession. We don't have a way, as you say, of scaling it up, of capturing the learning that's occurring. It's often restricted to a school or even to a, an individual classroom. One of the things that ACER has done over the last couple of years 
is to introduce another conference that, that parallels this, which is specifically for classroom practitioners. So we call it the Excellence in Professional Practice Conference. And the whole idea of that conference is to bring people together to share what they're learning um, about ways of improving practice. And we say to them, we need data, we need evidence that what you're doing is making a difference. Um, this year, we had just over 100 people um, uh, propose papers um, for presentation at our conference. So that's just a, a drop in the ocean, of course, but um, it's, it's recognising, I think, that there is learning occurring out there and we do need to find better ways of capturing it and, and scaling it up. A concerning thing, I think, um, for us coming out of some of these international studies is that we're starting to see um, some slippage in relation to the gender gap. Um, we could see that we were making progress um, over a period of time um, in closing the, the gender gap, particularly in mathematics um, in secondary schools. But the latest round of PISA has, has made us concerned because we can see that um, the, the gap has opened up again. Um, the, the gap that we were closing. And that, I think, is, is quite, a, quite significant because we know that as a country, as many other countries do, um, we face challenges in terms of the underrepresentation of girls and, and women, um, particularly in mathematics and science subjects. Do you have any thoughts on that topic? Yeah. Um, look, uh, I wouldn't claim to be an expert in, in what is showing us those what's causing uh, that gap to open back up. But I would offer a few general observations. I think one of the things with uh, disparity around gender uh, is in many areas, including in politics, uh, I think uh, for a period of time we thought to ourselves, look, this is all on a journey of change uh, and kind of left to itself now, it's going to fix, mm -hmm. you know, the, the rest of it's going to get fixed. We've changed so much, the rest of it's going to get fixed. Uh, I think the uncomfortable truth is the rest of it's not going to get fixed mm -hmm. uh, unless uh, there is a dedicated focus on fixing it. So uh, I would be concerned that maybe, uh, because we were heading in the right direction on gender and maths, that everybody thought uh, the rest of it will just, you know, wash its way through and fix itself, and we didn't keep the focus up the way we needed to. Uh, and we do need to keep the focus up on gender and education right around the world. Uh, there's a bit of a global debate at the moment where, uh, because you're getting some convergence in gender statistics in some nations for access to schooling, uh, there are some people who are using the phrasing, uh, in education we are now in a post-gender world, believe it or not. Um, uh, well, you know, when we can uh, turn on the TV and see what's happening in Nigeria, uh, when we can sit in our studies and look at the statistics, where we can contemplate how difficult it's going to be if the world lifts ambition and says, instead of universal access to primary school, let's actually aim for universal access to primary and lower secondary school. So you're right in that time in girls' lives when they're uh, adolescents, uh, when, you know, issues of... Uh, child uh, sexual slavery, of what happens to those girls, that hard intersection of money and power and sex in girls' lives as it can play out uh, in their teens, uh, that all of that is coming to the fore. 
I don't think we can look at any of that and say, gee, we're all comfortably living in a post-gender world. Mm. Uh, there's a lot to do to keep the focus on girls and girls' education. And one of the things I am hoping to do uh, in this further journey uh, at uh, GPE but also at Brookings is to lend some personal <coughs> efforts to making sure that we keep the focus on girls' education. Very good. Everything we've been saying, I guess, um, in thinking about quality and equity and, and measures of quality and equity um, is based on the measures that we have, um, which tend to be the basics, reading and mathematics and occasionally <coughs> science. Um, but we know that there's increasing um, talk about and increasing pressure to think about um, a range of outcomes that we should be thinking about in our schools and in our educational institutions um, beyond literacy and numeracy. And um, uh, we've been a little aware and, and involved actually through um, Ray Adams on our staff um, in the work of the Learning Metrics Task Force. Um, what, what are the things that we should be thinking about um, in terms of outcomes for young people in the 21st century. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? And, and are they the, the sorts of things that can be measured at all? Mm. Uh, well, just uh, for people's background, I suppose, the uh, Learning Metrics Task mm. Force where Ray from ACR is doing such good work is something I've now got a connection to through Brookings. Mm. Uh, I jokingly call it ner Nerds United will never be <laughs> defeated. Uh, and so we uh, sit, sit around in a you know very learned way talking about measures and standard deviations and uh, all, all of the things that everybody around this room would love. Um, the, the purpose of it uh, is... Uh, when, you, when you get onto this issue of quality, so mm. access, yes, but quality, you've got the statistics like 250 million kids not reaching basic benchmarks. You go back and say, well, why is that happening? Sure, big class sizes, lack of supply, professional development, all of those things are important. But then you find, you know, 40% of developing countries uh, don't have national assessment mm. systems. Mm. Many of them don't even have regional assessment systems. Of the ones that do have national assessment systems, often the data isn't used for anything. Uh, so, you know, with all of that, you know, data not there or data locked away, uh, there's nothing to kind of drive the engine of improving quality. So the Learning Metrics Task Force is on this journey to say, if we were going to help strengthen assessment systems, what are the measures and can we design any that would be globally applicable? Uh, because if you just take, you know, PISA or something like that to a developing country, uh, then it's quite likely that every child will mm. fail and the data's not any better than randomised guessing. Mm. Um, so the LMTR is trying to come up with these measures. Why does it matter? Well, it matters to driving uh, better practice within country, but I think it also matters to the global debate because when we replace the Millennium Development Goals as a world... Uh, I think uh, that the world will head in education to a new access measure mm. plus lower secondary, but also a quality measure plus learning at this kind of outcome. Mm. Uh, political leaders will probably use quite broad words for the description of that and then it will fall to a bunch of nerds uh, to, to come up with what that means as a measurement system. So that's what the LMTF is trying to do. But there's tension within it because everybody can say, yep, measure literacy, measure numeracy. I mean, doing that globally with comparable indicators is a bit of a trick, but intellectually I think we can get all of that. 
but what about measuring uh, skills in uh, conflict resolution and peace building, which is important to so many of our mm. developing country partners? What about measuring capacity uh, to take your place as a citizen in an emerging democracy? Um, you know, I mean, this kind of is difficult for us, let alone mm. in many of the harder contexts in which GPE works. So, you know, my my sense is we'll probably end up only with the best of measures in the narrower areas, mm. narrow but vital areas of literacy and numeracy, but we shouldn't give up the intellectual journey of mm. trying to look for more and broader. Mm. And I think um, one of the challenges there as well is um, whether you can develop measures that are going to be useful across countries, um, because we, we've had experience ourselves um, ACER working in places like India and Bangladesh and Afghanistan and Abu Dhabi, um, where many of those um, countries will say, we want to be measured against the best in the world, but when, and so India will choose to have two of its states participate in PISA, um, for example, but then their performances are so poor um, that, um, in the case of India, they decided to just drop out and not continue with it. But it does raise the question, um, many of these jurisdictions, many of these nations, want to be world-class, want to be measured against high standards, and yet, as you said, so often the, the measures that we develop are completely inappropriate for them. So whether it's possible, even if we can solve the measurement issues um, and, and get the comparability that you're talking about, um, I think there's also the question of uh, should we be trying to measure everybody against the same standards um, or do we need to recognise where people actually are help them think about where they are and how they move forward from, from there. Yeah. Look, I, I, I think that is um, absolutely the right debate. Um, when, I, uh, when I was Prime Minister and we were dealing with uh, the defence, the military strategy in Afghanistan, uh, the phraseology, not so much amongst our military, but certainly amongst the US military leadership, uh, became Afghan good enough. Um, and what they were trying to catch by those words, which are sort of confronting when you just say them, Afghan good enough, uh, what they were trying to capture with those words is when they handed over security leadership to Afghan national forces, mm. they were not going to be handing over security leadership to an entity that has all of the sophistication of the US military, which whatever its flaws might be, mm. is still the most capable uh, defence machine the world has ever known. Uh, so, you know, they mm. developed this Afghan good enough. Um, and, and I sort of... I've had that in my brain listening to some of these education debates because I, you know, wouldn't want us as a world to say, well, the children of Afghanistan can settle for Afghan good enough mm. uh, in their education system. Uh, but then it is, you know, not useful... Uh, to run in with PISA and have every kid fail mm -hmm. because, you know, you don't... I mean, apart from anything else, there's just the wholly practical problem that, you know, what was the point of giving them te the mm -hmm. test if you haven't learnt anything from mm -hmm. it? You haven't mm -hmm. learnt whether anybody's going better than anybody else or any school's better than anybody else or any practice is better than anybody else, just everybody's failed. Um, so I think, I think the, the sort of thing to conceptualise, very difficult to do, is how we can build some measures that are at a more basic standard, but ultimately would sort of scaffold in to the sorts of things that PEAS mm. is measuring in the way that NAPLAM scaffolds across 10 achievement bands 
um, so that, you know, if you're improving in Afghanistan, it might be a fair while before yes. you're going to hit that range of assessment, but the outcome that you're ultimately seeking is that range of assessment because you want your kids to be performing at the standards of the world. But you can monitor your progress in that direction. Absolutely. Mm. And, and you know, if I can just uh, do a little bit of a commercial for ACR, I haven't been uh, paid to come here, so this is, uh, this is just being... Uh, I think I'm getting a glass of wine, so not wholly unpaid, but... Um, uh, uh, Going, going uh, around uh, the world and, you know, with everybody now talking about quality and learning metrics task force and all the rest of it, uh, right around the world, ACER is being pointed to as one of the global uh, centres of learning about these kind of measurement dilemmas. Uh, and, you know, when I can go to uh, international education meetings and have someone there who is not Australian and not connected with ACER sit and tell me, do you know that, you know, ACER is doing this in Afghanistan? To which I can knowingly smile and say, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I did. <laughs> um, uh, but the, the fact it's being, your work's being cited, it really is right out there at the cutting edge of what's being done. And I think just, you know, as an organisation, uh, you and, and your staff should be very proud of that. But as a country, I think we should be very proud too uh, that we are right in the global leadership of so many of these very, very difficult debates. Mm. Well, thank, thank you very much um, for that. Um, just, just, um, just, just on Afghanistan for a second, uh, um, because people won't be aware of this, um, in, in terms of Afghan good enough, um, some of our most sophisticated use of technology and assessment is actually happening in Afghanistan, in the work we're doing in, in Afghanistan, in that um, the assessments are done on um, tablets, on iPads or tablets. Uh, but it's not online because you, you can't get internet access. So what we do is we download the assessment tasks onto the tablets before we go into the country, and we've just collected the best data that's ever been collected, I think, on um, achievement levels in Afghanistan under difficult circumstances, obviously. Um, and then the, the tests are taken, and then... Um, after the testing and when there's internet access again, when the tablets are brought back to a place where there's internet access, um, the results are then all automatically uploaded um, onto, the, onto our computers. So um, some, in, in terms of Afghan good enough, um, mm. some of our most sophisticated um, work is actually being done so that we can solve the practical problem um, of, of working in Afghanistan. On, on technology, um, I mean, as, as, as Prime Minister, um, clearly you made huge contributions in this area with our national broadband network and, um, and uh, the, the um, rollout um, of technology in education um, as well um, over a period of time. Um, so we've, we've invested a lot um, in technology. Um, has it been a, a worthwhile investment? Um, oh, look, I think, I, think it's been, uh, I think it's been worthwhile. I think it was necessary. Um, you know, we couldn't, if, if, if we just let uh, the uh, integration of technology in schools uh, happen at the rate it was happening, then we would have been a long way behind for a long period of time. So really our intervention as a federal government was to turbocharge it, particularly in uh, secondary school years 9 to 12 and, you know, get the devices out mm. there. Uh, but having said that, you know, I was acutely aware, even when we were doing it, uh, that, you know, technology uh, 
technology works if it's properly integrated uh, into a whole uh, system of learning. Uh, and, you know, that has come home to me forcefully now doing this education work because there's, you know, uh, quite a few uh, very, uh, you know, philanthropic-minded uh, technology people and technology companies and, you know, they've got all of the best impulses in the world and that's fantastic. Uh, but there's, you know, lots of examples where when they followed this, those impulses and made a lot of technology available into a developing country in the absence of a whole education sector plan, mm. uh, then, you know, it quickly becomes the thing that the youngest kids are playing blocks with because mm. the computers don't work anymore because there's no electricity, there's no internet access, there's no one to service them, there's no one who really knows how to properly use them. Uh, then, at the other end of the spectrum, when you get the rollout right, uh, there's, you know, things happening in education, including actually the payment of teachers. Mm. There's paying teachers across, you know, all of a developing country uh, in rural areas where there isn't access to banks has been a very big problem. Uh, you know, properly integrated, the technology can solve those practical difficulties and can make a real difference for the learning journey mm. of the kids. Uh, so, you know, technology, yes, but it's really technology how, mm. how we use all of this amazing capability. Mm. Mm. We're getting close to the end of our, our time. Um, can, can I just finish with a, with a couple of questions? Um, a feature of the Australian landscape pretty much is our federal um, structure, um, the Commonwealth and the, the states, um, and the ongoing tensions um, between levels um, of government. Um, do you see a way forward on any of that? Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> this, this is the one, the quotable quote. <laughs> <laughs> got, got an easier question. Um, it, um, in in some ways, it's some in some ways it's better than people think it is. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I'm going to have to qualify that statement, or people are going to say, "Gee, she's got uh, the rose-coloured glasses on." But um, you know, I, I think it is. Uh, uh, it is good and something that we should be, you know, thinking about, that during my time as Prime Minister, we managed to negotiate the big school funding reform package, uh, the National Disability Insurance Scheme across jurisdictions, and actually the standout partner for me in those reforms was Barry O'Farrell from the other political party mm. leading New South Wales. Um, so, you know, it's, this is the whole thing, um, you know, it's not that the whole thing's dysfunctional, sometimes it works. Mm. Uh, but having said that, there are all the areas where, uh, you know, like the standard rail gauge, everything just takes mind-numbingly long and the, the you know, by-play politics is uh, so much and so destructive. Mm. Um, whether it's good or whether it's bad, it's what we've got. If you were, you know, starting at ground zero and saying, you know, let's start Australia's history of government structures again tomorrow, would you come up with states and a national government? No, I don't think you would. Uh, you'd come up with empowered regional uh, local governments and a national government and you'd go from there. In many places in Australia, that would look a fair bit like states, mm. you know, Tasmania, mm. places mm. like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, you'd, you'd, start, you'd start again. Uh, but, you know, we're not going to do that and you could lose a lot of time in vital reform agendas trying to do that rather than work with the structures you've got. Mm. I think really the, 
what, what we need is a demanding populace uh, that says to you know, leaders, state and federal, uh, we want you to achieve this. And one of the reasons that we won through on education uh, and on the National Disability Insurance Scheme is that there were motivated, sizeable public campaigns in support of those changes uh, and it pushed people through. So if I was going to give you know, anybody with a cause any advice about you know, uh, wangling COAG, uh, my, my first advice would be you need the wave coming up from the citizenry mm. to bring it through into that table uh, rather than going to the COAG table first and asking for change. Mm. Good. Final question. Uh, my um, female colleagues um, have asked me to ask a question that I'm sure you're asked very regularly. Um, when my daughter was in primary school, she told me that one of her ambitions was to become the first woman Prime Minister of Australia, which um, I, I don't think Sarah realised um, things were going to move quite as quickly um, <laughs> as they have. But the, the question I've been asked to ask you is um, what advice would you give to um, a girl who these days wants to be the second woman Prime Minister of Australia? Well, uh, I genuinely hope and uh, am confident in believing it will be easier for the next woman who comes along. And I hope we see the next woman coming along before a girl in primary school today is of age to be Prime Minister. Um, uh, the, I, I've always joked the, the thing about glass ceilings is that there's no way through them except smashing your head on them and that isn't a very uh, you know, pleasant process. So having smashed my head on that glass ceiling uh, and broken it, I think it will be easier for the next woman. But it will be easier if we all make a conscious effort to make it easier. And I hope one of the things that will happen, and I ask the nation to do it in my final speech, is that we do uh, grapple with some of these shades of grey about gender. Mm. Uh, I've been working on a book which will come out a little bit later this year and obviously in reflecting on my uh, time as Prime Minister, one of the things that I've wanted to work through is these shades of grey. And I think we can just, you know, whether it's uh, how we deal with girls in primary school, secondary school, or the question of female political leadership, if we're rigorous about setting aside the stereotyping and the gender torts and the gender insults and the things that keep women back, uh, then we'll see a lot of difference. Good. Julie Gillard, we look forward to your book. Thank and you. Um, thank you very much again for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for being Thank you. Thank you very much for both of those speakers. Very, very quick 45 minutes, I'm afraid. Um, I'd like to thank you both very much. And Julia, on behalf of ACR, um, we, we wanted to present you with a little gift for coming along and doing this for us today. Um, and in lieu of a gift itself, which we're sure you would have got a lot of, we've made a donation to the ACR um, Foundation. The project that we've chosen is looking at, uh, looking at education in Malawi. In Malawi, 90% of pupils at Standard 3 can't count and can't read from left to right on a page. The ACR Foundation is supporting Dr Ian Lowe from the Mathematical Association of Victoria um, to access funding to change the teaching of mathematics and to support the printing and publishing of textbooks. The materials he's developed provide a new and effective approach to the traditional teaching of maths and the focus of his work 
is on primary schools in Malawi that have no access to professional development or to textbooks. In addition, professional development has been provided, provided for about 200 teachers in Malawi designed to teach the understanding of mathematical concepts rather than just rote learning. We'll keep you informed of the progress of that. So here are the vouchers. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. To listen to more podcasts and to access the latest teacher articles, videos and infographics, visit www.teachermagazine.com.au or join our community via Facebook and Twitter.